Welcome to another edition of FITS Podcast. My name is Gabriel Wilms, and I'm the Program Officer for Capacity Development and Mentoring with the Fund for Innovation and Transformation, or FIT. FIT is a national funding and learning program of the Intercouncil Network, funded by Global Affairs Canada, and we support Canadian small and medium-sized organizations testing innovative solutions to advance gender equality in the global south. Today, we're here with Dorota Blumchinska, Executive Director of the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba a nonprofit organization that offers secure, affordable, and clean transitional housing, as well as programs and services for newcomer families of Winnipeg. Dorota is a passionate leader and advocate for refugees and immigrants on both the local and national level. She's been an IRCOM for over 12 years and serving as executive director for 10. She's also the president of the Canadian Council for Refugees and has been involved with several other organizations in the Winnipeg newcomer and social service sector. We asked her to join us today to talk a little bit about IRCOM's innovative approach to programming. Um, and we're very happy to have her here with us. So welcome, Dorota. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I, I guess I just wanted to start by asking a little bit about um, IRCOM and some of the programming that you offer, if you can speak to that a bit. Well, so IRCOM is, is a very innovative model in many respects with respect to um, settling newly arrived, specifically refugee families. Um, who require both a safe place to live, but also many programs and services to aid in their integration to society. The, the premise is that when a family has a safe home, they are able to acquire language further. They are able to create more meaningful relationships with neighbors. They are able to participate economically more quickly and at a higher rate than those who enter survival employment. And, and so at IRCOM, we create a cocoon around our families for this three-year period during which time they have access to programs and services and support staff 24 hours a day um, in the event that they are going through a crisis or they need help navigating systems um, or they have questions. And, and the, again, the, the idea is that they, they have housing, they have access to good information, they have voice and authority, and they also begin to have a sense of belonging and feeling loved and valued within the community. Amazing. So you, you spoke there about it being an innovative model. So obviously you have sort of your three-year approach with, with program and services involved. But um, when we talk about innovation at our program, we refer to sort of newer improved ideas or approaches to solve challenges or problems. Um, so I wanted to know sort of what does innovation mean to you and, and what does that look like uh, in the context of your organization? You know, I think at IRCOM, innovation is... Um, is both in how we design programs, but I think it's also how the programs are executed. So one of the things that often surprises visitors to our community is that you generally can't tell the tenants from the staff and vice versa. So over 70% of our staff are of an immigrant or refugee background. Equally so um, are women represented, a high representation of women as well as people of color. And so, within the community there there's an organic flow of, of lived experience on both sides and although that might not seem innovative to have it at this high of a representation means that those who are newly arriving begin to see themselves in the lives and the experiences of those who might have arrived five years earlier or ten years earlier and so it creates this this continuum of how the integration process um, 
unfolds, but what it also does is it gives people a sense of hope for the future, which is, which is a very um, frail thing for many families when they first arrive. I think the, the other critical aspect to, to innovation, which again, I don't know if it's innovative except for how you um, really apply it, is that we take an asset-based approach to everything that we do. So what, what that means is that when you look at um, your community members or participants, program participants, you look at them through the lens of every skill and asset and capacity that they enter in with and how you can scaffold and build on that. So um, in society, we tend to talk about vulnerable communities and low-income families and, and marginalized peoples and, um, and we, we highlight the, um, I would say, not just the difficulties they've experienced, but then those difficulties begin to label them as human beings. And when you begin to articulate and truly value and even almost quantify what is the value of resilience? What is the value of courage? What is the value of holding on to a dream even as, as it feels or seems completely out of reach? In the work that we do in our interactions with our community members, with our tenants, with, with all of our participants, by looking at them through this asset lens, you realize that you're dealing with people who have um, extraordinary capacity um, and maybe the context is different and maybe the language is the barrier, but it's not, it's not the concept. It's not a barrier of intelligence or capacity or even desire. Um, the, the barriers are related to, to language um, and local knowledge. And those are pieces that you can work through quite quickly, um, especially when you're dealing with a community that has a hunger for, for learning and for wanting to, to rebuild. That's a really interesting um, paradigm shift to think about asset-based. I haven't heard that term before. One of the things in our program that we're interested in is how can solutions and approaches be locally driven and driven by the communities that are impacted by them. So do you involve um, new participants and newcomers in, in how you develop your programs? How does an asset-based approach, um, how is that integrated or how does that look in practice? We we draw on the knowledge and, and the skills of our community through a variety of ways. So not just in the governance and leadership of the organization, but at, um, in various employment relationships, also as tenant leaders. And so we have more than two dozen um, different ethnocultural community leaders who are able to bridge to the communities living within the building for us, but who also bring those perspectives. And the tenant leaders, specifically provide feedback on the programming that we deliver. So they, they are explicitly asked, and, and we do that on a semi-annual basis where we're gathering input from the community and saying, you know, what is a different way of providing this? We have trained uh, community members as first language service providers so that they can work within their communities. Um, we have hired our tenants to do um, the the building maintenance, this provides them with economic means, it provides them with a Canadian workplace reference, it provides them with increased knowledge of how it is that people enter the labor force within our community. So it's almost um, cyclical in so many ways. They are tenants and then they are our employees and then they are volunteers and then from volunteers they are advisors and, and um, the community is critical in 
ensuring that we're accountable to that larger mission and vision that we aspire to. My experience has been that people don't generally want to be solely recipients of services and supports, that they want to have the autonomy and they want to have the authority and the ability to act and to make a difference not only in their own lives, but in the lives of others. And that has a way of helping restore their sense of dignity. You know, we, we're adjusting course all the time. So I, I tend to push back on anyone saying, well, this is a, you know, a best practice. Well, nothing is best because nothing is ever permanent. Uh, but it certainly is a promising practice when the people who are intended to be the recipients of a service are the, um, the writers of that service and the architects and the designers and the ones who then, who then deliver it and then evaluate it at the end and then circle back and say, how can we do this better next time? It sounds like you've established such a sustainable ecosystem of, you know, your program feeding back into itself and enriching itself. And it sounds like you do sort of test your programs. I don't know if you use that terminology exactly, but you're consistently sort of evaluating and, and iterating depending on what kind of feedback you get. How does your data collection and feedback sort of system work? Um, well, there is no shortage of evaluation at IRCOM. Um, I would say that it differs a lot program by program. So every new family coming in, we do um, a needs assessment and a settlement plan. So we look at exactly what is needed. Then we do a six month check in a one year and a two year check in. So we're, we're surveying their needs. We're also um, gathering data around um, their source and level of income as they come in. And for the three years on an annual basis, we're looking where that income, whether or not the source of income is changing and whether or not the amount of income is changing. So we're looking at economic data. Uh, we're also tracking the um, number of community services that families access. So we're looking for an increase in, um, let's say access and regular conversations with public schools or with community centers or with other service, social service providers. Uh, we track uh, participation in programs. So we have a performance measurement framework. And we, what we try to do is we begin to correlate and sort of say, well, when you are at, you know, college IRCOM, uh, we are going to, you know, provide a bit of a roadmap. And this is what the roadmap looks like. So in year one, you're going to have access to um, you know, these programs and these services and these workshops, for example, right? And what we're trying to do is gather data about what is that, and this is a work in progress, but we're looking at what is that, that perfect combination of programs and services that results in this versus that. Um, and the other piece that we're doing, and we're doing this through partnership also with the National Housing Strategy and CMHC, um, and, and several research partners is looking at um, what is the data that we gather within sort of our very much enclosed ecosystem. It, it could almost be a you know, control group a little bit. Uh, well, not the control group. We are the research group against a control group. But, but looking at uh, specifically what it is that we do and what are the integration indicators, so the integration outcomes, and then how do we correlate them to national integration indicators? So there are integration indicators that are gathered, for example, by the Conference Board of Canada. And, and that is through a variety of, you know, StatsCan and, and other sources. And so when someone three years from landing or five years from landing, you know, has moved from this point to this point with respect to economic participation, what does that then mean for where they will be at year 10? 
Um, and so we're trying to tie all of it right down to the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis and say, okay, we need to adjust the programs and services to increase the odds of this trajectory. That's a lot um, of data to manage and, and sort of to see all these things, you know, the micro sort of individual experience right up to how does this compare to a national spectrum of experiences and, and what's the trajectory we were aiming for. So sounds like um, a challenging but really interesting project to try and integrate all those levels um, of data evaluation. I was going to ask about, in, in relation to that, do you ever feel that you have programs that um, that fail or don't go as you anticipate and, and how do you learn from that? One of the things we're interested in too is sort of creating a, um, a culture um, where it's comfortable to acknowledge that things are not going as planned and you're going to have to change um, in order to succeed. Yeah. I'm curious about that in, um, in your context. That's, that's a good question. Um, I think the way I would honestly answer that first is to say that we have never failed but we have changed course many, many times. Right. Um, and so what that means is sometimes recognizing that we're not actually getting the, the outcomes that we had aspired to get. Um, many of our programs are started um, and are designed in such a way that we, we know from the start what it is we hope, the conditions we hope to change at the end of the program. Um, and then when that isn't realized, sometimes we sunset them and new ones emerge, uh, or sometimes we significantly change direction. We, we did that actually a few years ago with, with a number of programs. So um, one program that we sunsetted, um, that we no longer delivered, we did that because we realized that um, in order for participants to succeed in the program, they had to have a high Canadian language benchmark. Um, and the participants who went into the program with a lower level um, weren't succeeding. We knew that this wasn't actually going to meet the needs of our core participants, and it would meet the needs of, of other community members, um, but it wasn't aligned with our mission and what it is that we were seeking to do in terms of supporting community members who were, who were earlier on in their English language or maybe in their Canadian orientation journeys. And so we, we um, beautifully wrapped it up and packaged it and handed it over to another community organization. And that was, um, that was a very hard decision, but I think it was the right decision. Uh, we also migrated another program yet again to another community organization um, because it didn't have the right model. And what, what I mean by that is it was a program that was intending to test um, a specific um, model of a family-based programming that was written in the U.S. and it was selected as part of a much larger cohort to, to do research on this model. And uh, a couple of years into it, we really realized that, that there wasn't an alignment of values. So if you can imagine letting go of a program, even though it's, um, the participants are saying it's really good and, and it has financial sustainability and you know it's designed and and it, it's meaningful but at at its core um, the the messaging and the values that the program specifically speaks to um, are not aligned with our values and so we let it go it was the right decision to ensure that we remain true to who we were um, in terms of an organization that is very much asset-based and that is very much dedicated to harm reduction, that is very much dedicated to uh, um, 
not prescribing to people how they ought to behave. Um, it was so prescriptive and it had such a Western cultural lens to it. And it assumed that the way, you know, Western uh, societies do things or resolve problems or, or run their families is the way people ought to run their families. Um, it just didn't honor, it didn't honor our community. Um, and so we let it go. And I'm proud of that decision because I, I, I thought it was the right thing to do. But yes, we, we have many challenges um, and things don't always work out. And it is, it is easy to end something that's not popular and just doesn't you know, really resonate with people and doesn't have the impact. It's far more challenging to end something that a lot of people really value and you know is sustainable and you know it can keep going, especially as a not-for-profit. But at the end of the day, if you, can't, if you can't live to what you believe in, I don't know that that's, well, that's not work that I would want to be involved in. It's interesting to think about. I mean, I think sometimes in um, the social services or, or nonprofit sphere, there's also sort of scarcity mentality or a need to or a desire to keep things going because you, if you land upon a sustainable model, um, it's difficult to question that. But I think it's really interesting and and brave to to um, really try and determine whether that aligns with your values. Kind of reminded me of a, another question. I mean. Um, your program obviously aspires to not have sort of a top-down or, or Western or patriarchal mentality to yeah. work. Um, and I'm sure you also sort of think about things from a gender-sensitive and, and intersectional lens. And I'm curious about how that manifests in your programming. Oh, boy. Okay. Another big one. Sorry. Another big question. <laughs> this is really unfair. I was really hoping for easy questions. Okay. Where to begin? Well, ERCOM has been and will, I think, continue to be for a very long time on a journey with respect to all of that. I don't think that this is work that's going to end for any of us for a very, very long time. Um, we definitely are a, um, a woman-led organization. Um, both of our buildings, Ellen and Isabel, are women. Um, I think ERCOM is a lady, um, or at least it is in my mind. So, I like that, um, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a bit of a... Um, community of mothers um, and uh, mothers, aunts, grandmothers, sisters. I think it's part of the reason why we are often comfortable to be in spaces involving uh, emotional integration and, and involving sort of the, the complexity of lived experience mm -hmm. um, because we're, we can go into all of those spaces with, with those lenses. You know, it, as an organization, we, we're a bit of an accordion um, there are days certainly when hierarchy exists. Um, I'm not going to tell you it doesn't. I'm the executive director, so uh, there's a hierarchy um, and, and there are systems. But what I would say is that there is a culture of relationships that um, almost entirely takes over that. People talk to one another and there's a recognition that we play different roles, but towards the same ends. As an organization, um, we, we've even articulated this, that, that we are a learning organization. So not only is our community, I think, on, on, on board for, for just trying to understand what it means to, to belong and to integrate and how do you do that meaningfully, but, but our staff, um, our team is very dedicated to um, asking very difficult questions of one another and then challenging to go into really, really hard spaces. And I think when you talk about, um, you know, 
gender roles and patriarchy and intersectionality, you're talking often about conversations that make people very uncomfortable. Um, and so it is not uncommon for there to be um, in any week a number of extraordinarily uncomfortable conversations <laughs> at ERCOM about gender and about identity and about race and about privilege and power and about where decisions are made and about how voices are heard and about how people's perspectives are valued. I, what I'm proud to say is that there is such an incredible trust. And, and I think that maybe, I think that word captures it the best. And, and as far as you know, who we are within the larger community, I, I've said to my team many, many times, we share everything that we do. And that is because what we do is not proprietary. It belongs to this community. I say what it, what differentiates us is the execution. And that is not something that somebody can just walk into because this is a culture that has been nurtured. Last year in particular, one thing that I'm so, so proud of that took years to get in place is that we grandmothered our, um, our registered retirement savings plan contribution policy which was designed uh, initially as a percentage of income earned at IRCOM. And what we implemented instead was a flat amount um, based on time served to the organization, irregardless of what position and what earnings. Um, and that has cost us twice as much as what it cost us before. Uh, but it also means that both myself and our live-in building supervisor are receiving the exact same contribution to our retirement savings plan. Uh, and it took, and not only policy development, but values discussions and discussions about equity. And again, discussions about what it means to secure um, both a retirement, but also just a, a life of dignity as an older adult. It was the biggest victory. I, it, was, it was huge. It's, it's a process, but I don't know. I, I think we're building something awesome. That's remarkable. Yeah, such a, a, from everything from vision down to, I mean, you're implementing obviously amazing policies and tangible things that really speak to those values. Obviously, that's a testament to your leadership and non-hierarchical leadership of this organization, which is really inspiring to hear about. And I was wondering if you have any words of wisdom about how best to um, cultivate that in an organization. You know what? The, the best way is to step back and actually let people do it themselves. What I've learned in the last 10 years is that the, the most powerful place I think for leaders is to be the wind uh, beneath people's wings, to be honest. And so what I would say is that the, the spirit of innovation and the environment of innovation is an environment of, of collegiality and of trust, um, of collective bravery and courage. We all do what's needed to be done because we have the honor and the privilege of serving this community. And it has been the most incredible expression of, of my humanity um, to be able to call, um, call ERCOM and to call my team, my family, but to call ERCOM home and to feel that I belong here. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. There's mamãs, assim, sago macro aí. There's mamãs, assim, sago macro aí.
That was Mong Congo Banzoli in Janvier from Mulamba DRC. For more songs from the Make Music Matter Healing and Harmony program, go to makemusicmatter.org.